Support for this podcast comes from the patrons at patreon.com slash Serlin. Hi, everybody. This is Serlin on Game Design, Episode 11, Game Balancing Techniques. And with me today is Photix. How's it going today, Serlin? Hey, it's going great. I think we're going to have a great episode because we're talking about exactly what we know about the most. Great. (laughs) And that is techniques to balance things. Yeah, I noticed that when we were at Fantasy Strike Expo, that you and I had a lot of discussion about how we should be balancing codex. And we were kind of just naturally using forms of argument that maybe other people wouldn't have thought of. But it's where we do this stuff all the time. And so I thought we could kind of explain our thinking and our methods to people. Sounds exciting. (laughs) Okay. Well, so the first one is, is the most simplest thing you could do is to say, if something, if somebody tells you something's too good, then beat me with it, you know, prove it. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I mean, it's just the most basic way to see if someone's claim has any amount of validity. So what if they can't beat you with a thing? Well, what I do as a tester, if someone can, if someone says something's too good, I'll have them explain to me why and then try to demonstrate it. Mm-hmm. And even if they fail, I'll look for maybe, for example, something is too good, but because they told me about it, I was biasing my play towards countering it in some way. So oh, I'm going right. to try to I'm going to try to like gauge if I was not privy to them like attempting this, would this have beaten me? Or maybe did they make mistakes while trying to do it? But I could see a way to do it even better than they did it. Like, I'll try to analyze it because usually, not always, but usually there's something to a claim of something being too good. Usually there's something to the claim? Is that what right. you're saying? Like, e- either, either <laughs> something... Gonna, I'm going to disagree with that. Whoa, 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 I mean, hold the... on, hold on. I have, to, I have to explain what I mean okay. by something to it. By something to it, I either mean, that, not necessarily that it's true, but maybe at a certain skill level of play, it's true at least. Like, maybe a bad mm-hmm. player versus bad player, this strategy is overly dominating. And it doesn't hold up at higher levels, in which case you demonstrate like a counter to them or whatever. But right. usually people don't say that claim without it being them having truly experienced it, even if it's wrong. I see. I mean, where where I'm coming from there is just endless numbers of claims are thrown at me that are just all crazy and in every which direction. And I feel like very few claims are really right. <laughs> Sure, so sure. That's our job is to sift through them. Right. I thought I would give you just a couple of fun anecdotes of when I told people to beat me. Because so most of them are really boring. Like dozens and dozens of times people would say some move in HG Remix, Street Fighter HG Remix was, was too good. And I'd say beat me with it. And then they just don't. And it's like not <laughs> a very interesting story. But then a few times, I think it was five times total over the... I don't know how many months, 18 months or something of development where people did beat me. And it was so memorable <laughs> those few <laughs> times. One of them was, sure. uh, was Zangief's Lariat. People said, hey, it would be fun if his Lariat was like in hyper fighting where it was a little more invulnerable. And I said, okay, sure. So I, I did that. And it was like that for a while. And then Graham Wolf, who is a top player and was a great tester, very helpful throughout development, he came to me one time and said, hey, Serlin, this uh, Zangief Lariat, this thing is crazy. Like, I don't know what is going on with it. It's way, way too good. And I was like, what do you mean it's way too good? Like, it's the same as in this other game where it was fine. And he said, no, I don't know about that. I just know that this thing is crazy. So, you know, beat me with it, right? That's the that's our first test. And then Graham said, 
hey, Serlin, what do you think would be the best way to beat it in the whole game? And I said, I don't know, maybe like uh, Balrog's Rush Punch. He's like, great. Why don't you play Balrog and just Rush Punch me and we'll see what happens. And I couldn't even touch him. <laughs> it, was, okay. it was like it was so over the top. It was so ridiculous. So that's why it was just so memorable that like he, he challenged me to pick the best thing to beat it in the whole game. Right. And I still couldn't do it. Right. And another one that was memorable was uh, Bucktooth. Uh, he was playing T-Hawk and uh, in Super Turbo Street Fighter, the version that came before, T-Hawk's dive, when he touches you with the dive, he will bounce off kind of slowly. If you block the dive, you can hit him back. But if the dive hits you, then you're knocked down. Now, the change I made was I made it safe on block. Instead of bouncing back, you would fall down immediately. But we kept the part where if it hits, then it knocks down. So the result there is like, if T-Hawk actually hits you with a dive, he falls right down and he's right on top of you and you're knocked down and he can do anything he wants. So it's like the best situation ever in the world. Right. And then if you hit him out of the dive, you probably only do like a tiny amount of damage. So you could just dive all day, just dive, 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 and then eventually it hits and then you win. And so he was he was playing against me as T-Hawk and he was showing me, he's like, you know, this dive is, seems like a little too good. And he beat me a whole bunch of times. And I thought to myself, all right, all right, I know I'm getting beat here, but uh, but I got this. Like, I'm still at it. Okay. <laughs> you know, like, I just, yeah, yeah. I, like, you know, I'm just, I'm just messing up. Like, why am I falling for this? I could just anti-air him, I could be more careful. And then he got a phone call and uh, I, I paused it, but he like motioned to unpause it. And so we're playing and he's on the phone and he's got his head like tilted and he's kind of reaching <laughs> yeah, yeah, like awkwardly yeah. and he's like trying to make arrangements about where he's going to pick somebody up and how does he get there. And he's like not even paying attention at all to the game. And I, <laughs> I could not even touch him because oh, like, like, he would just like mindlessly dive like 20 <laughs> times. You know, then he'd like be all tricky and wait like two seconds and then, oh, now dive. Uh-huh. And <laughs> that's so right. Okay. So anyway, yeah, that was too good. And we had to make it not knock down. <laughs> sure. Okay. I got one more and then uh, we can move on to a different topic. This one's a little different in that it's the other way around. So James Chen claimed that Vega's fake wall dive where he flies across the screen, but doesn't attack you. He said that that was too good. And I was like, Wow, really? Because it can't hit. A non-attack is too good, right? <laughs> it was pretty crazy, like, the way it moved and how fast it was, uh-huh. but it can't attack, so, you know. Right. What, I mean, yeah, you can do, you could do tricks with it, but I was skeptical, so I said, okay, uh, why don't you play Vega? And, oh, other people agreed with him, too. They said it was too crazy. So I said, why don't all of you just, just all of you can play Vega? And I think we were talking about beating uh, Vega versus Ryu, I don't even really play Ryu. Like, he's not even one of my best five characters. Right. But I was like, I'll play Ryu. And I just, I'm not really afraid of this wall dive that can't hit me. (laughs) Right. I mean, I know you're going to do a trick with it. You're going to, like, you're going to bait me to Dragon Punch. And then you'll land quickly and you'll hit me. Like, that's what you're going to do. But, like, I know that. So, uh, (laughs) that's sort of what you're saying before. Like, if you know what they're doing, like, does that affect the test? Right. Anyway, so we did this and they they couldn't beat me. And then like everybody had their chance. And this is a room full of like expert top players. It included Jason Cole, who won Evolution two times. Right. This sounds like an exaggeration or embellishment, but it's literally true. I remember because we pointed it out over and over to the people at the time. 
that I lost literally not one single round against anyone in the entire room. Okay. So that's how pathetic they were at trying to beat me <laughs> with this thing. And, but then there's like a twist. Okay. So the end of the story, it sounds like I'd left it, but I didn't, I did change it. And it's cause James Chen made this argument. He's like, okay, I know that we've completely failed to beat you at all, but I would like to point out that when you do this move against Cammy and you go over her head, you can be completely safe. But in ST, you can kind of do a homemade fake wall dive. You just like don't press the attack button. Mm -hmm. If you do it in ST, then Cammy's dragon punch can hit Vega. So Cammy can stop Vega from doing that. But here he could actually do it kind of unchallenged, uh -huh. just like over and over. And it sounds like even though we didn't beat you, you know, it's just isn't that potentially really dangerous that you could like constantly fly around the screen against Cammy and she can't do anything. And I was like, okay, you know, this move doesn't really need to be good. It's just like a joke thing. So just be safe. We'll tone it down. <laughs> right. It's almost like it's so bad that you put it out of its misery instead. Right. <laughs> okay. Now we can move on to something where you are more involved. So we've been testing this game called Codex. This is a card game kind of in the vein of Magic the Gathering, but not really. Um, we've been testing that and... You helped me a lot with the balance at our recent convention, Fantasy Strike Expo. So I think people will be able to understand this without even knowing how the game works or really much about these specific cards, because it's more about the way of approaching the problem than the specific problem. But uh, one of the cards was Scribe. Do you remember that? Oh, I sure remember that card. Yeah, so Scribe, uh, you, you, could, you could explain it. Go ahead. Sure. So it's um, it's an early game unit. Tech one is the term, but in any event, you play it early on in the game, like maybe on your third or fourth or fifth turn. And what it did initially when I started testing it was it had two attack and three health. And when it came into play, it drew a card. And then whenever it attacked, it also drew a card. And the thing is, the scribe is its tech path that it's involved in is basically like the defensive controlling kind of stall the game and then win through you know, powerful controlling cards and eventually kill you with like a big finisher. Yeah. So if someone knows Magic the Gathering, you think of like a blue white control deck where one of your tools is to get card advantage, to get more cards. And so that's, right. that's why he's there. Right. So in practice, though, every single strategy where you could potentially use this guy, he was just absolutely dominating because his efficiency, not only is he uh, two, three, for two, that replaces itself, which is already, like, very good. But then if it ever gets to attack, you're getting an additional card. So you can kind of think of it as two gold to draw two cards. Oh, by the way, I get a two, three. That could maybe even draw me a third card. Yeah, that so was, an important, so very important thing to judge how good he is is how many cards does he draw. So always one, because when he arrives in play, you draw one. And then the next question is, how often can he draw the second card? And the answer was pretty much 100% he's drawing the second card when he could attack, I think. Sure, and in those, in those early turns, it was probably like 85%. That's a low ball. In the later turns, maybe only like 50 or 40%. But uh, in, well, the, I was in those early turns. Referring to the earlier turns. Right, yeah, yeah. then like, like probably 90 plus. Yeah, so, the, so most of the time you're getting two cards. And then what percentage are you getting a third card? And Well, I'm not quite sure on that one, but sometimes... <laughs> 
It happens. Yeah, it happened. I mean, it happened yeah, multiple times. Yeah, it did. I mean, we saw it happen multiple times. So that is a lot of cards. And it was so many cards that we started thinking, oh, yeah, by the way, someone brought to our attention, they thought, something in blue. I forget who or what they said, but the gist of it was they were saying, this blue thing is too good. And <laughs> I actually remember exactly what this oh, was. What, what was this it? Was, this was uh, Jed telling me that Illusions, which is a different tech path, was too powerful or like extremely powerful at least. Maybe he wasn't saying it was too good, but like really we got to watch out for this and I'm going to show you how powerful it is. So what he proceeded to do was uh, start the game against me and then played as many scribes as he possibly could. Then once he had destroyed me entirely with the scribes, he played like one illusion guy and was like, see? Yeah, exactly. It's just like in the early days of magic, the same thing happened where people claimed that I forget what card now it was, but some card was too good. And then really, when you look at what they're doing, they played Ancestral Recall over and over, <laughs> just pay one mana to draw three cards. So they have like a million more cards than the opponent. And they're like, look at how good these cards I'm, I'm playing are. <laughs> but it's just because you drew too many cards. It was unfair. So it's the same right. thing. It's like it was drawing so many cards. And so then we started thinking about how to adjust it. And when he draws a card when he arrives, that feels fair, like what he's sure. supposed to do. Right, right. And then when you got a second card, like I maybe thought that was fair a long time ago, but now, you know, it seems like pretty dang good. And I was asking, what if you had to pay for that? Like, would you still play him? What if you had to pay the opponent uh, a gold or something? Oh, we, sure. Like if every time you drew a card, they got a gold. I, yeah. That was our thought experiment. Yeah. And so then I ask you, would you play that? And I said, absolutely. Yeah. And I agreed. I said, I would also play it. And then the next question was, okay, what if we give him two gold? Yeah, <laughs> uh, no, it, was, it wasn't each time. It was actually just right. when he arrives. He, sure. When he arrives, they get two gold, but you get to have sure. this guy. Sure. So would you play that card? I believe my answer was in some circumstances, I would still go for that card. Right. And in my, I was a little more optimistic on it. I was, I would still play it like most of the time I, I was, right. I was, I was pretty hot. And so then we could, we could then like argue and go like, you know, Photix, you, sh you should really consider playing this even at the two gold thing. And then you try to convince me, but what is the point? I mean, look where we are in this. <laughs> right. Like we're trying, it's a question of like, should you, you know, bribing them one gold versus two, like, but the actual <laughs> card doesn't have any kind of bribe. <laughs> right. <laughs> It's just totally crazy. So, I mean, we do, we ended up just taking out the card draw except for the first one. And and we reduced its power by one just for good measure. Oh, did, uh, yeah, I think or at least that was the plan. I don't know if you did, maybe didn't do that. but uh, I actually don't even recall if we did. Maybe we did that. I only have the old one in front of me. Uh -huh. uh, yeah, right I think there. we made it a one three that arrives and draws a card and that's it. Oh, OK. Well, that makes sense. So then the next one is an even more extreme version of this. It's called Circle of Life. And th that card, it's uh, oh boy. Let's see, natural order, I believe. Right. Is yeah, it's similar quite, card in magic. Quite similar. It's actually more fair than natural order, but still <laughs> way, way crazy. But because the game system is different, it turns right. out that a similar thing is this way more powerful in our system. Right. Anyway, so you sacrifice a unit, and then we we have these different tech levels of units, like tech one, two, three. I, there's something that are tech zero. So you sacrifice a unit and then you can get a unit of a higher, one higher tech. Well, from your codex, but we'll just say from your deck, you know, sure. we, we don't need to get into that. So you sacrifice a unit, you get a better unit, basically. So what about it? Well, I mean, I think the first thing we noticed is that pretty much everyone that played green, 
eventually, if you gave them enough games for them to explore the color and, and try the different techniques, eventually everyone landed on just play Circle of Life all the time and they always seem to win. Yeah, and I thought back to the history of it and I'm like, you know, I've I've seen it played and I've seen it not played. And uh, come to think of it, when people play it, they... Uh they usually win. <laughs> right. It's, right. It's a solid known. It's, I mean, it's a known good thing, but it's really that the system changed over time and it might've always been super good, but it became just mega crazy good in the last right. month or something to explain why circle of life is so good. So people can have some intuition about it. You could think about Starcraft and imagine that you're making a tech two unit, like an immortal or something. But you're getting it like so early in the game that the opponent only has a few Zerglings. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so it's letting you skip ahead in the normal progression of the game. And that's what's so powerful. Like another thing it's doing is it's letting you cheat in a thing where you don't have to pay the full price of the thing. Like you only pay four gold, but you could get a guy that's worth more than four gold. Right. And we were kind of focused for a long time on that being why it's good and what the point of it is that right i mean you're spending four gold and you're losing a guy you're losing a weak guy and then you get a stronger guy and you know yeah that's that's really good but that's the point of the spell but the other thing it does is it gets you this good thing too early in the game and so we started doing the same kind of thought experiment about scribe about well what if you had to pay the opponent and it got so crazy like it got uh, really hilarious. I think our, I think the version where we settled on it was still worth using was that whatever unit you were going to go get, your opponent got gold equal to its cost, and you had to sacrifice a worker, and you had to sacrifice like, discard a card or something. No, I, I remember it well because I've told this story like 20 times. Okay. Uh, I'm all about this story. So <laughs> okay. it was, what if you had to sacrifice a worker, which it's kind of like, sacrificing a landed magic except it's even worse because you had to pay for the worker you had to pay a gold so sacrifice a worker and give the opponent eight gold we were just gonna give him a fixed eight no matter what you got okay <laughs> then would you do this and it it sounds like it can't possibly be worth doing at that much disadvantage but the actual answer was that we were totally on board with doing this all the time and people would say, well, wait, how could you, how can you get, you can't like give somebody eight gold. That's a crazy amount of gold. And then like, you don't know, you have one less worker. So you're just losing the whole economy race. That's your plan. And the answer is, yeah, that's my plan. Because you, what are you going to do about this guy? Like, yeah, you're just going to shut down their ability to ever make a guy that could contest with it. Yeah. You actually can't even, they can't even make good use of that eight gold. Right. Because they they would need like more cards than they actually have access to. And then none of those cards are as good as the thing that you have. So it sounds crazy, but it was actually real that we were saying we would still play the card under that situation. So that uh, it shows like something is horribly wrong, right? <laughs> right. Like way, way, way not okay. I said that one of the important qualities of the card was that it got you a thing earlier than you're supposed to get it. And so we thought for like days about how to preserve that and then gave up because there's just no way to make that fair <laughs> Sure, <laughs> that we could think of. So, so now it does not get you something earlier than you could have got it, but it does let you search for a thing. There's versatility there. Right. So another one was White Star Barbarian. And that guy, he, let's see, I don't have him in front of me right at the moment, but 
He was a 3-5 with overpower, and whenever he yeah. dealt combat damage, he gained a plus one, plus one rune. That's right, and he costs four. So the point of him would be you attack, you deal combat damage, and now you get plus one, plus one. So you were a 3-5, and now you are a 4-6. Oh, that's exciting. And then maybe you attack with him again the next turn. Also, yeah, it's when he deals combat damage, so it right. actually works if they attack him too. So the, right. the idea is that... It, Several turns go by and he just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, that's exciting. But we changed the combat system to have persistent damage and then he becomes not that good anymore. That means that if he attacks, yeah, he gets plus one, plus one, but what did he attack? Like a 3-3 three, three or something? And now he took three damage that stays on him forever? So he can really only get away with doing this like once or twice. And it's just really sad. And then you pointed out something very important that sometimes we have to look beyond the card itself, but like the context of where are you playing this card? Like what is the right. overall point of it? Right. And uh, you correctly pointed out that he is part of a tech tree that has several good tools, but is missing like just a go-to solid guy. Right. And, and he, except him, like he's supposed to be that guy. So we have to tune him. So not so that he's like, average or barely playable or something like he needs to be pretty uh attractive to, yeah, he to needs fit. to be the guy that if you're playing against that tech tree he's the guy you're expecting to see most games yeah yeah it's just based on what what the other things are in the tree because the other things are like a little more tricky or they're like silver bullets like you want them yeah. for specific things right and so you pointed out that it this is in the, the white faction another tech tree in the white faction is in a kind of similar situation where it has its go-to guy who's called Glorious Ninja. And Glorious Ninja also costs four. And so you're like, okay, let's say you're considering one tech tree or the other tech tree. You're not sure which way you're going to go. Well, what about these go-to guys? What about these, like, you know, the main, the all-star of each team? They're right. kind of they're kind of similar in that they, they're both cost four. Their stats aren't too far off from each other. One's a 3-5 and the other is a 4-3, I believe. Right. Yep, that's right. And then Glorious Ninja has Haste and Swift Strike. Swift Strike is like first strike in Magic. So, yeah, t tell me about your thoughts on Glorious Ninja. So, I mean, <laughs> well, simply put, he is one of the most brutal uh, Tech 2 units possible because the combination of Swift Strike basically meaning... That as long as whatever it's attacking has four or less health, that he is going to be impervious, you know, from hitback. Combined with haste, meaning that you're going to get an effect immediately and disrupt your opponent's game plan immediately, makes him extremely efficient. And then it's very hard to counterattack him because Swift Strike works on defense as well. So basically, he's this very persistent threat that's going to get an effect immediately. And the, the, that combination of those two abilities happens to be so powerful together that we had a hard time coming up with a way of editing that card and preserving the power level, like at all, like editing it at all and keeping its power level. It was difficult yeah, to even but, come up with something. But we weren't, I mean, no one is so far claiming that he's too good. He's just very good. Right. So He's, he's like deservedly good. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm just restating what you're saying, but so people can understand how good he is. It's like, so imagine there, he's not on the table at all. The opponent doesn't even know. I mean, the opponent will know that you've built the tech building that corresponds to him, and then they could start to get afraid or something. But right. he's not on the table yet. And then what he can do is appear on the table, immediately attack because he have haste, and kill something that has four hit points or less, like that same turn 
Whereas most units would have to wait another turn before they can do anything. So he's like a kill spell and a guy, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, very much so. Okay, and then the other card we're comparing it to, White Star Barbarian, same cost, four gold. So he's the guy, the thing where he grows each time he deals combat damage. And he has Overpower, which is kind of like Trample and Magic. So at first we're like, okay, so Overpower, you know, how how good is that compared to the Haste Swift Strike thing? <laughs> well, I mean, Overpower is very, very good, but yeah. it can't really hold a candle to Haste and Swift Strike. Right. So we started thinking, like, what can we do that's anywhere in the same ballpark as this haste strike? And that, that's about the, the editing idea you mentioned, where we said, well, what, it, let's just for a minute, let's not think about the barbarian guy. And let's just make like an alternate version of the ninja, the one that we already know is good. And we struggled to to do that. So, uh, like, I think we said, what if we removed haste from him? Because we didn't mm-hmm. want the barbarian to have haste. Right. What can we give him that would be like equal power? And I think one of the early ideas was, okay, what about this? What if he didn't have haste? We're talking about the ninja now, the one that is already okay. But it's a thought experiment. What if he didn't have haste and he had one more attack power? So would that be fair? Would you use that? Would you use them both the same maybe? And what was your... (laughs) Our our answer was not even close, just nowhere near the same. Yeah. And so, so why is that? Why would you not? I mean, another attack power. That's really good, right? Why not use him? Well, I mean, it's just a matter of, I mean, you're getting one turns less of effect. And also just due to the nature of swift strike, it's all about like thresholds. Like if, if you're going to kill, like if the, if you're attacking something with four or less health, that one extra attack is completely worthless, but killing one less thing because it didn't have haste is enormous. Right, yeah. So if you play the version that has the one more attack power, but not haste, you decided to not kill a thing the turn he comes into play, right? Right, right. Yeah, yeah. you say, so if you're choosing the more, the attack power version, you decided to not kill something the turn he comes into play. And then we can say, well, do you profit from it overall later? And then if on the following turn, you only killed something that was four health or less, then you got no benefit at all. from. (laughs) So in order to have even the tiniest hope of profit, you must kill something that has five or more hit points on turn two. And even if you did that, you still probably are behind from from if you had chosen the other thing. Because if you chosen the other thing, you could have killed somebody the first turn and then killed a second thing the next turn right right so then we then we're like okay this extra attack power is nowhere near as good as the haste it's can't it's not even close like what about two attack power uh hmm, same thing wait a minute wait we can't actually add attack power and then then we said what about infinity attack power well well first <laughs> we we stuck on double for a bit we said what if you yeah. doubled it and i said well Let's say, I mean, at that point, eight, you'd have eight attack power. Eight attack power will kill any unit. But, you know, at that point, when you have that much attack power, you're actually looking to hit their base more so than anything else. Like, if, you're, if you have that's that much attack power... That's their life total, right? That's, the, that's yes. how you win the game. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, because, I mean, if you can chunk their base away in three hits, which, you know, eight attack power would do, because you start with 20 life, that's, that's probably going to be the most efficient use. For example, you wouldn't really want to use eight attack power to kill, like, a 3-3. Three, three. Like, that's just not really efficient in, in many respects. So even if looked at it from that angle, well, the haste ninja can come down and hit your base for four. The next turn, he hits your base for four again. The double attack power non-haste ninja comes down, does nothing, then hits your base for eight. So on turn two, 
you had less flexibility and still did the same amount of damage to the base. And only on the third turn would the eight attack power be more efficient at hitting their base and only by four damage. Right. And the stars had to align for you to have even done any damage to their base. Right. Right. I mean, probably you didn't, but uh, we're sure. But I'm yeah, saying so like in your optimal scenario. Yeah. And so then we, right. So that showed that if he had double attack power, but no haste, it was still like pretty, it was not nearly as good. And then we we're like, wait, is there just no limit to this? Like, what if you had infinity attack power? You pointed out that it's a little fishy of an example, because if you had infinity attack power, you would know that ahead of time. And your whole game plan would just be to give this guy some evasion where you can't block right. him. Right. So um, what, what I said, right, because your, your point there is that you would completely change the way you play your whole game just around making this guy hit them once. Uh, right. That's what we decided. So, but, yeah, he would be better in that case, but we're not right. really talking about that. Right. But what, what I said was if when I'm about to play my 4-3 Hasted Swift Strike Glorious Ninja, if you right then and only then told me, oh, by the way, I'll let you trade that haste for infinity attack power. Would you like <laughs> to do that? Most of the time you would say no. <laughs> right. I, I mean, it's also crazy, but it's true. So this was just a stepping stone to help us figure out something for that barbarian. And uh, I'm going to not even say what we came up with. You came up with a great idea, but people can play Codex someday and find out. Yeah, it's it's I haven't got a chance to play with it yet because, you know, we made so many changes that it was at some point hard to even try to test them in, in the actual <laughs> gameplay because there's so many things. But he sounds really fun now. I will say that I changed his name from White Star Barbarian to Doubling Bar Barbarian. Oh, that was actually his name. I'm so yeah. happy about that. <laughs> yeah. I know it's great. Our, our, uh, our, uh, our placeholder name stuck, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Thank you to Gavisi for that name. Support for this podcast comes from patrons like you at patreon.com slash Serlin. You can become a patron and support the development of more finely tuned Serlin games, as well as more content on this podcast. And if you do, you get access to a sneak peek at art that's in development and playtest materials for upcoming games. You also get access to a special second podcast where you can hear behind the scenes of how we actually solve design problems. That's patreon.com slash Serlin. So the next interesting balance thing was the Plague Lab. So that is a building card, and that's important uh, important type of card to understand and how it fits into codex because a building cannot attack and a building cannot block right. <laughs> or it's actually, it's actually called patrolling in, in codex, but you know, think of it like blocking. It, it can't help, help you. You're getting attacked. The building what isn't going to do anything. Right. What you could think of if you play magic is imagine an enchantment that could be attacked and killed something right. like that. Yeah. So, so the enchantment wouldn't be defending your life total. Also, it would be, in, in this example, vulnerable to being attacked itself. Uh, and also further imagine that it's not just your life total. In Codex, you have a bunch of fragile, very valuable things that you need to protect. And a building isn't going to do that. So before we even tell you what this building does, it has all these things stacked against it just because it's a building. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, and then what it does is uh, it puts a minus one, minus one rune, or, or I guess it's called counter and magic on all the enemy guys. So that's extremely powerful. It also does a second thing. Let's not even get into that. It's really the, the first thing that is our concern right now. Sure. So this building costs five. That's pretty expensive. Yes, and that is on the high end. You were saying it's maybe too weak and that it should be cheaper. And what about four? And what about three? And I was like, oh, slow down there. Like 
three. Three is so low to put minus one, minus one on all the opponent's guys. Not your guys. It's right. like this. It's debuffing all of those guys just immediately when it comes into play. How can that possibly be fair for three? It's way too low. And then you explained. Right. Well, so there is a spell. So basically, uh, you know, the, the things we've been talking about so far are tech units or buildings in this case. Which you have to kind of build up for. But spells correlate to heroes, and heroes you can play right from the start, and you can get these spells pretty darn early on in the game. And one of the spells that the same tech tree has to offer allows you to put a minus one, minus one rune on two targets, essentially. More or less two targets. Mm -hmm. And in many cases, there's only going to be two relevant targets to hit it with anyway, and that spell costs two, I believe? Is that right? Uh, I don't happen to remember. Well, in any case, it's inexpensive, it's easier to set up, and it's doing the majority of what this Tech 2 card is doing. I just looked it up. It does cost two. Right. Uh, so also the hero, one of the black heroes, can spread some of these minus one, minus ones. Sure. Right? So yes. uh, bet if, between the hero's ability to spread the things and then the hero casting the spell that puts two of these minus ones on different things. You were saying like, well, a lot of the time it's the same, you know, like if you're if the opponent has two things or three things, it doesn't really matter to put something on all quote unquote, all of them. <laughs> right. 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 I mean, so, it's, it's, it's a fringe case where that would really be a big difference maker. Uh, well, so I mean, a couple things there. One is, in the cases where they had only two or three things, it, it doesn't make any difference that it said all. <laughs> right. Okay. And then the other thing is how often does it matter? Like how often do they have four or five or six things or something? Sure. And you were pointing out that so much of the time you're really like at the end of the day, you're just putting minus ones on several things that you could have done anyway without this building. You know, you, right. you could, you could have gone this other route. And on the one hand, you didn't get as strong of an effect because it only goes on two or three things and not mm -hmm. everything. But it was a lot easier, right? Because you didn't right. need a specific building ahead of time. The hero yep. can just can guess, cast Come the spell. Come in out of nowhere. Yeah, so I think it was a good point to... It was It was just kind of interesting and unusual of a point to make that when we're evaluating how good is this, you're like, well, does it do a different thing? No, it actually does kind of the same, mostly the same thing you could have done anyway. So really, we're not... We shouldn't be focusing so much on how powerful is it but rather how easy is it compared to right. the right. other choice? So I think an important point maybe that people aren't realizing, like a tech two building, as you pointed out, has the vulnerabilities in being able to be killed. It doesn't help protect your other important things. I mean, in this particular case, putting a minus one, minus one rune on your opponent's creatures could help, but not to the degree that you would hope a tech two card would. Like, it's not going to be the first tech two thing you build, because if you manage to erect a tech two building, you're going to want, uh, you know, something that's going to help you stabilize immediately or get ahead immediately and this is more of a incremental card you know because you know putting minus one minus one rune on stuff is not making the most immediate huge impact it's making a decent impact and then over time will you know help you build up like incremental advantage meaning that like the difference in not just the ability to actually play the card at all but in when you'd want to ever start playing the card is huge like we're talking you know, maybe six to seven turns later than the spell. Uh, what, what was, sorry, I missed that. What was the big difference between one and one? 
Well, the, the difference is it's not just that. Oh, what two things this, are you comparing? The, the spell that puts uh, minus oh. one, minus one rune on two things and then this building. Like, it's not just like a matter of, oh, well, this one's a bit more convenient or a bit simpler, but it's also a matter of when is it feasible for this to be a good idea to do? Oh, and the I answer see. to that question was many, many turns difference. Yeah. Another thing you pointed out is that you could also compare it to other buildings in the game. And like if you let someone have this plague lab, so you have a bunch of minus ones, that's sad for you. And then it does have another ability that can spread the minus ones. But um, it's actually the first thing that it's more scary most of the time. Right. Yes. But then all the other buildings, it just kind of turns out that if you let them have those, then it's crazy. Like they they spiral out of control. Yes in how powerful they are. Most other buildings have some kind of ability that's like, do a crazy, crazy thing. And then next turn, do it again. <laughs> right. Or I think, I think my favorite is the, uh, the blue censorship council where your opponent is only allowed to play one card per turn forever. As long as that building's alive. If that, <laughs> if they don't delete that from the board immediately, they are going to die very quickly. Well, red is a building that lets him play a two, two hasted, Sorry, not a 2-2, two, two, a tech 2, which meaning, meaning a very powerful card. Or two of them, actually. Two of them. Yes. Yeah, two of them. And they, they have haste and then they die at the end of the turn. But it's like, holy cow, that's a lot of stuff coming at you. Like two tech 2 guys. And then the next turn, it's like potentially another 2 and another 2. Right. You, can't, you can't keep up with that. Like you, right, have to, you have to answer that building. You just cannot let them have that building. So your point is that, you know, you look at these other buildings and if you allow the other buildings to stay around a long time, you are just terrified. But if you allow the plague lab to stay around a long time, I mean, yeah, it's bad for you, but it isn't nearly as bad. And right. so it's even, it's even more reason why, like, yeah, can we give you a price cut on this thing? Right. You know? <laughs> yeah, because we actually both agreed. We actually like what it does. We we enjoy the gameplay of it. We like the, the way it interacts with other cards. It's perfectly suitable. Like the text on the card is suitable. It's just mm -hmm. the feasibility of ever getting to use it was off. Yeah, pretty much. Did you have any more anecdotes? Or if not, I've got a kind of a crazy story about mathematics. But I'll... No, go ahead. I'd love to hear it. <laughs> Okay. This is like a really weird tangent we'll go on, but just bear with it. Okay. So there's this book called the Principia Mathematica, and it's by these mathematicians named Whitehead and Russell. And it's not to be confused with Principia by Isaac Newton. So the point of this book is that mathematicians were trying to create a system of logic that starts with some axioms, and then you can see all the things you can prove from those axioms. When mathematicians created those types of systems, they ran into a problem. And they found out that as long as you created something that was reasonable, like not a, not a joke thing, like, like, you know, not just one axiom or something, like any kind of substance, substantial system that had enough in it that you could describe how arithmetic works, they'd run into the problem where either their system isn't complete or it is not consistent. And what that means, if a system isn't consistent, it's like the system could tell you that X is true, but then somewhere else it tells you that X is false. So that sounds broken. I can't be right. So then you change around your axioms or something so that that never happens anymore. But then you get the other problem, and that's that you have a system that's not complete. That means there's a statement you can make in the system that's true, but there's no way to prove it. 
And that's really frustrating and it feels wrong. <laughs> so you think, oh, we must be missing something if there's these true statements we can't prove. Well, you know, let's add another axiom or something. And then you do. And now you got the other problem. You get the first problem again. So these two mathematicians said, we are going to solve this completely. Uh, we're doing this in this book. And it explains this method to construct our system of logic. That's like this fortress. It's like an ironclad fortress where we know the thing that goes wrong in these systems. It's always the same thing. It's always some kind of self-referential trick. It's always about like, what about the set of all sets that talk about other sets or something like that? And they said, we're going to just put a stop to that nonsense. Okay. And the base of our fortress, you have sets that don't refer to any other sets. On the first floor of our fortress, you can have sets that refer to things, or sorry, the second floor, you can have Thing, you can have things that refer to the first floor. And on the third floor of our fortress, you can have sets that refer to sets in the second floor and so on. And so we've structured this in such a way that we've avoided this problem. And we've created this, the first time ever, this uh, mathematical system that is both consistent and complete. And here's our masterpiece. And then in the greatest ownage that's ever happened in mathematics that I know of, this guy named Kurt Gödel comes along. I don't actually know how to pronounce that correctly. Gödel, Gödel. He comes along and he says, okay, couple things, you guys. First of all, uh, your system is not complete and consistent. And here's like two sentences that shows you that it's not. <laughs> but that's not all. Okay, the second thing is that not only did you fail at your task, the task is impossible. Like it's provable that you can never, ever do what you are trying to do. And here's your proof. And it's called the Gödel incompleteness theorem. And it was like a breakthrough in mathematics. So the whole the reason I tell you that whole story is that so that the second guy in the story is like on such a higher level of thinking than the first people, the first people like fumbling around trying to come up with some system, you know, and then this guy's like, no, like that all it's all garbage. It's all you could just could never ever do it, no matter how hard you try. And I've used this higher level of reasoning to prove that. And I actually felt the same way when one of our playtesters, Flack Maniac, <laughs> told me about some balance problem. Okay. So the balance problem was when you want to build your tech buildings in Codex, the higher tech buildings let you play more powerful units, sort of like in StarCraft. And you have some leeway about, well, when are you going to do that? Are you going to build them early? Are you going to build them later? And one strategy would be to try to build them as early as possible so that as early as possible, you could have really powerful units. And that's kept in check because if you do that, then you'll get rushed down and lose. It would be like, what if in StarCraft, you just only built the most powerful unit? I mean, you would just die because you would have nothing and for a long time. And the opponent would attack you with very weak things, but you would have nothing. So there's a situation where Flack Maniac would claim that fast teching was too good and couldn't be beaten. And we would kind of go back and forth and I would, you know, I wasn't really sure he was right. Or sometimes I would change a little number here and there and say that I fixed it. But uh, he was really not satisfied. And he used a technique that I had not really ever thought about before. And since then, he's used it many more times. So I will share it with everyone because it's probably pretty useful in turn-based games in general. So here's how it works. Let's say that player one is going to be the one that fast techs. So they are building very little except for 
these tech buildings and then they're going to build a powerful unit as soon as they can. I believe it was a powerful unit on turn three uh, or maybe four, depending on which version of the game. And then I would say this is fine because player two can just attack them a bunch and beat them. And so what we would do is we'd say, well, we know exactly what player one has. It's it's really easy to figure out because they hardly have anything, right? Right. So we could just write down like, okay, you know, they've got three gold worth of units or something or whatever it was on this turn. It's really easy to, to compute that part. Now, the other part is, well, what is the player two going to do about it? And it's pretty complicated because there's like a really large number of things that could happen and different draws. And it's that it's messy. It's why it's difficult to discuss. But his technique, it doesn't we don't even have to know what you do. Actually, that's why it's so interesting. He's like, just assume that player two can beat it. Like, we don't even have to figure out how they beat it. Just assume they can beat it. So now we have one data point. I mean, we, it's a made up data point, but it's this data point that says if one person has X and the other person has Y, then the result is that Y wins. And now flip it around. So what if player one has Y and player and player two has X? Well, we, we already know we just, then player one would, would win like by the assumption. And then the thing you pointed out is so what is this look when we flip it around? What does that look like? Like, is it when would that arise in normal gameplay? And then the answer that was so damning is that, oh, here's what it looks like. It looks like player two played the game normally and player one just like automatically wins. Uh-huh. <laughs> you follow that? So like, sure. It, yeah. What it, just to summarize the most important part of that, it's that if player two actually has the ability to stop player one, from fast teching, then the same type of units the other way around meant that player one would just win all the time anyway. <laughs> like through, right. Because player one is like a step, you know, they're a turn ahead. Right, right, exactly. And so player one being ahead like looked similar to the case where player two is a turn ahead, but player one skipped playing stuff because they were trying to tech up. And so we've used that many more times where we wonder if a certain strategy is beatable by player two. And, you know, we have to do the flip around thing and, and make sure that it works. So I actually had to change some core rules of the game since then so that it would survive the flak maniac test. And, it, and I believe it does now, but it didn't, it didn't then. So thank you to flak maniac for being, sort of like Kurt Godel and showing me that <laughs> at the time that no, no possible number of tweaking how much things cost could ever have fixed that problem. We needed to step back and change the very rules of the game to solve that fast teching thing. You know, somewhere in that anecdote, you reminded me of the part of the testing we did on the starter factions mm-hmm. where, where we had to analyze well, like, because there was a claim that a certain strategy was too good. I forget actually what cards were involved in, in that. I know a um, lot about those cards, so I might remember. Yeah, it was like that. Maybe it also was that. Get, oh, right. It was that if the uh, the bashing player went to tech two right away, it was too good. And then we, we did a thought experiment where like, OK, what if the non bashing player just like plays totally normally and <laughs> turns out they like win very easily? And then what if they like counter it specifically? Well, then they win even more. 
And then it, it, it actually, I mean, it, it doesn't have the same end result as what you were talking about, but it just kind of reminded me in the same process of, you know, trying to the detail out the specific turns. And in this case, the conclusion wasn't that we had to change the system, but rather that we just had to make sure that people were playing in a remotely competent manner. Yeah, I do remember what you're talking about. That one was player two or wait, player, player one it tries to build the tech two rhino as soon as possible. Right. And then can player two beat that and someone said no and i didn't believe it at all uh, you know i've been wrong before I was, I was wrong to flag maniac but i was like you know i've been i've been over this a lot uh, on these exact cards and i've mathed out the first few turns and like i've just i'm so deep into these two particular decks they were taking they were playing i just couldn't imagine that there was a problem with it and i said well why don't you use x strategy and then you said like, well, you could use, you could do a little variation there on Y strategy and it would be even better. <laughs> and I was, right. like, yeah. I was like, yeah, that's true. But you, even if you just did the X, you'd still beat this Rhino. <laughs> and, then, right. and then there was actually a third completely different, like those, the X and Y were kind of similar to each other, but there was like a completely different thing you could do that would also beat it. So it's like three different things that would beat it yeah and then we started saying like well wait a minute what if you instead of doing these like specific things like just play normally does that beat it <laughs> <laughs> and it's like I, I believe the result of that was that if you do any of those three things you just you just like stomp it it has no right. chance right and, and if you play normally you come out like ahead pretty much yeah yeah or like close to even but certainly not in even. a in, in a like a terribly losing unbeatably bad uh, situation Right. So th that's because they're playing the fixed version of it. The old one, the one where Flak Maniac complained, it, it, to give a StarCraft analogy, this is how it worked. Let's say you want to fast tech and build an immortal, which is like a tech two Protoss unit. And then I'm like, oh, I know he's going to do that. What I'm going to do is make Zerglings and rush him down. So I do that. And then my Zerglings can't reach you until you already have your immortal. <laughs> that, that's how it worked right. and, then, and then it got even worse more recently where we changed the combat rules and it actually became same story but then when my zerglings get to you not only do you already have your immortal but my zerglings are now not allowed to run around it <laughs> <laughs> they just right. have to right. all attack right. it and they die have to go all in on it yeah <laughs> right. or they can either attack it and die and damage it or not attack it, but yeah, then just stare at it. But then there's going to be another immortal on the next turn. Right. Yeah. So basically, we we learned that if you're going to allow people to have like a whole new tier of power, you you have it has to be late enough that they could have possibly been attacked by some weaker stuff earlier, or else it's just broken. Right. Uh, that's pretty much all the stories I had this time, but I think we should probably do more episodes of this form because this just comes up all the time. These, oh, these definitely, balancing stories. definitely. Okay, well, uh, we will do another one of these another time. But uh, that's it for now. All right, looking forward to it. Thanks for having me. All right, take care. Bye.